0: We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and we are working from our previous outline. Uh, I'm, I hope that um, there are sufficient outlines in the back for you so we can pick up where we were on Tuesday. We are developing a very uh, appropriate and important line of, uh, of thoughts by the apostle in this portion of scripture. I asked you to think about... <clears throat> In our Q and A tonight, um, the the paradigm of a father that the Apostle Paul is employing as he deals with the church at Corinth. I'm going to reframe it again, and how his exhortation to them uh, as a as an approach and as a structure um, benefits you as a child of God, and then how might we also take his approach, not the only approach, but in this context, I think a very appropriate approach to dealing with scenarios in our life where people we might be assigned to minister to or have relationships with, um, whether they are biological and, um, and, and physical or are at, a, at a spiritual level. So the paradigm is that of a father and children, right? That is patir, technon, uh, that we are dealing with here in first Corinthians chapter four, verse, uh, <clears throat> verse 15, for though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you, yet you have not many fathers for in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. And what I try to call your attention to that I want to drill into today for a lot of reasons across the experience of our world and particularly our country is the, uh the kind of obligatory nature that the community of faith plays, the role of the community of faith in a society that is Corinthianized. That is a theological term to be Corinthianized is a theological term that describes the kind of deconstruction, the kind of chaotic, the kind of turning of things upside down, the kind of... um, uh, Destructive behavior, divisive, destructive behavior that the Corinthians are showing, and they're showing it towards the one who brought them into the unity of the faith in Christ. So, what Paul is dealing with is a group of believers who are practicing a course of behavior that we would quickly recognize is as departing from the faith, okay? Departing from the faith, because as we talked about before, the Apostle Paul becomes for the church at Corinth, the instrumental means of their salvation. And what I tried to drill home the last two studies is that the framework of his exhortation is calling us to appeal to his fatherly authority, his fatherly authority, which means the children should listen to him. And the fact that they don't want to listen to him is endangering them levels of their identity. Now, I think that if most of you are sensitive, as I am, to where we are in our society today, that paradigm of a father-children struggle and the children failing to understand the essential correlation between who they are in their identity and who Paul is in his representation of Christ is critical to their their outcome if they don't listen to him. Does that make some sense? Right. It's extremely important. And I'm going to be showing you a little video clip at the end of our presentation that's going to add to this meditation around humility and honor and uh, the parent-child responsibility that we all have towards helping our fellow men and particularly those who are in somewhat of the sphere of our influence to be all that God has called us to be. So let me let me pray. We're going to be picking up at defined and limited by Scripture. I'm going to touch on it. We're going to make our way all the way through the last part of your outline, which would be point number six, full, rich, reigning without us. Going to deal with what I talked about before, admonition through irony, admonition through irony. It's a tool that a parent might use with his children. When they're losing their mind. So, Father, we're asking your mercy now that as we have come to the end of the week, we might be physically tired. We might be um, distracted. We might be struggling with issues in our life. And I'm asking you that you would help us to now focus and uh, and do our job in a way that will um, allow us to hear you and um, and understand what your word has to say. Um, Open our eyes that we might behold the wonders of your word. Help us to always have a high view of scripture because we know through your precepts do we get understanding and therefore we hate every false way. It is by your word that we are quickened. It is by your word that we are purified. It is by your word that we are corrected, guided, built up and then made useful for your cause. So help us to adore the living word, Jesus through the written word scripture, by your spirit in our life. We're coming to you on the grounds of His shed blood, which cleanses, purges, washes, sanctifies us. And we need it. And we come to you on the grounds of his righteousness, which is our standing and acceptance before you. For without him, we can do nothing. We're asking this, which is immutable, unchangeable, irrevocable, the grounds of our relationship, us in him, him and us, and we and you and you and us. We're praying your mercy upon every family represented here. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so what I want to do is I want to pick up at verse number point number three in our outline, defined and limited by Scripture. Defined and limited by Scripture. And this is picking up after the first three propositions. The first one is that the Apostle Paul and Apollos served as patterns for us in Christ. They served as patterns for us in Christ. That's what we made clear. And I told you what a pattern is. It's a paradigm. It's a model. It's a frame. And and it's a -a hoopadime. For those of you who know what that is, a -a hoopadime is more than something external by which you and I objectively look at and analyze and try to draw some kind of analogical correlation to when you got a paradigm, you have kind of a schismatic or, or blueprint. You look at it and then you hope somehow to turn that into reality. A dime, just so I can lock this in, uh, go with me in your Bible to the gospel of John chapter 13. And um, <clears throat> it's probably going to be in John's gospel chapter 13, verse 15. Let me see what that looks like. John 13, 15. Yes. For I have given you and what? All right, that's our word. For everybody that's been saying, Pastor, I can't find hoopo dime in my Bible. There it is. <laughs> there it is. That's your, that's your Greek term. And it is the word translated what? Example, right. An example is a type, it is a pattern, it is a model. It is a model. And what that pattern, model, and type is designed to do at the level of hoopo. Hoopo is a preposition that means to be under dime. Hoopo paradigm, dimatic, meaning diagram. Hoopo diagram to be under means to trace it out in practice. Trace it out. So I've shared this with you before. Children learn how to use hoopo dimes in school when they have the picture image of something in a trace form where it's broken up in little trace patterns and then they have to take a pen or a crayon and trace through the pattern. And when they have traced through the pattern when it's done, we have an image of the pattern. Does that make sense? Now, the difference between a paradigm and a hoopodime is a hoopodime calls you to not merely think about it, but to act it out. And so what Jesus does in John chapter 13, which corresponds with our title, the humble servant, he takes off his clothes, he puts on a robe, and he washes the feet of the disciples. Now, the one who is supposed to be honored is taking a position of humility. Do you guys see that? That is not a paradigm. That's not just a model to consider. It's a hoop to follow. You and I are not a disciple if we are not entering into that model. Did that come home? Very important for us to see. We will tell our children to do it. We do not expect our children to simply listen to what we say. We expect them to do what we say. Would you agree with that? Right. And, you know, so God would expect us to enter into that. So the reason why Jesus went through that pantomime, and that was a pantomime, because it was a visual demonstration of a practical act that he's calling his disciples to enter into And it's not paradigm, it's hoopadime. That means you and I are called to trace it out in our life. And if we trace it out in our life, what people will see is the humility of Christ. All right. So that's where Paul is in our text. So I, I hope that helps under point number one, a pattern of us in Christ, an example, a frame, a model of unity, collaboration and what? Humility. And then, secondly, therefore, be discipled by our example. This thing called a pattern, what the Apostle Paul says is to be discipled. And what did we learn by that? To be a learner. To be discipled is to be a learner. And learning also inherently means to do, because a disciple is not just simply a student. He's a doer of the word. This is why Jesus says, why call ye me master and not do what I say? So a disciple is a person that takes on the totality of the comprehensive revelation of the teacher, not just his philosophy, but his way of life. So that when people meet a disciple, they are functionally meeting a replica of their master less their own person, meaning you don't lose your personhood, but you are certainly adopting the characteristics, the ways, the patterns of your master, and you commend them to other people because you are walking in them. This is what it means to be Christian. Does that make some sense? Right. And this is sadly a problem in our culture where people don't really uh, comprehend Christ through us because our own characteristics and our own qualities can so inhibit it, that the only thing we can do is give them a paradigm and not a -a hoopadime. We can only commend them to the word, not to the model. And we should really be commending them to the model as well as to the word. Does that make sense? Right. So what you're hearing from me right now is kind of what Paul is saying to the Corinthians, right? You guys are gifted. You got qualities. You got this, you got that. You should be walking this thing out. Don't be led away from Christ, by all kind of other hucksters that you have let come into the church to tell you that they are your teacher when I am your spiritual father. Y'all got that? All right, so let's move forward in this because learning and practicing is exhibited in what Jesus is laying out comprehensively. Humility is a beautiful thing because with humility, as we're going to look at our next point, I'm going to erase this because it's too light to see anyway. With humility, what you have with humility is a trajectory. I want you to get that because I don't need to unpack that a whole lot more. Why is the believer called to humility for two reasons? Humility is a trajectory. It is a trajectory and um, a trajectory is going to be a course. It's going to be a direction that we go into. That's what a trajectory is when one takes a position of humility, it's going to take you in a certain direction. Would you agree with that? Humility is going to take you into a certain direction, and that uh, that direction is going to be obvious. Humility is going to lead you to what? Honor. That's exactly right. That's not only a trajectory in terms of a telios are a a journey, teleos, meaning a purposeful journey. It's not only a trajectory in terms of a purposed journey, but it is an eschatological outcome. Think about it. Whatever this looks like, I'm tracing it out. It ends up looking like that. Whatever, and it's not so much depends, Louis. I just put too much ink up there. Whatever our um, humility looks like in its trajectory, because we could talk about that, couldn't we? We could talk about what this space looks like in terms of the up and down walk of the believer. Would you agree with that? We could talk about that. But what we must not miss is that trajectory means a forward journey. Okay, that you, you must get that because that's part of organic growth. Everything grows that's organic in a trajectory. And what the promise is, is that the humility paradigm, whatever this looks like, is going to ultimately be what? Exa- exalted, honored. That's, that's the, uh, this is what we call the Carmen Christi of Philippians chapter two, starting at verse nine. Listen to it. Philippians two, nine through 11. I'm going to give you the framework. So I'm telling you that this is our course. God has called us to this Therefore, what we have to understand is what humility looks like in practice. So this is what the text says. Wherefore, uh, start back at verse seven, please. Uh, Better start at verse six, maybe verse five, verse five. Yep, verse five. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So now we're supposed to share stories. Y'all got that? Let your story connect with his story. That's it. Why? He's the head, we're the body. He's the husband, we're the bride. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, have the same story. And it should be not only a life story, but a what? Love story. Y'all keeping up with me? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, verse six, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. For those of you who don't know, his essence was divine, right? He's equal in essence with the father. And so it wasn't a problem for him to say, I am the way, the truth and the life. I am the first and the last. I am the true vine. I am the good shepherd. And all of those things that he talked about he was were described in the Old Testament as descriptions of Yahweh. So everyone that understood the Old Testament knew that Jesus was calling himself God, okay? So he was owning it because he was. He shares that nature with God. Notice what it says in verse seven. But made himself of what? But wait, made himself a what? Right. That's called what? Humility. Humility. He did not spend his time boasting in his pedigree. He did not feel like the thing that he came into this world to do was make everybody know who he was. This is humility. Really, when that's a quality in you, it's actually attractive. It serves as a kind of antithesis to what we're getting ready to deal with glory, glory. He did not feel like he needed to be self-glorified. Remember, he said, I came not to do my own will, but the will of what? Him to send me right? And that was his father. So what Christ did was actually glorify God in his life. This is why we have so much tension around people comprehending the equality with Christ and his father as being equal and yet him being called the son of God and not God in the strict, what we call ordinal sense. Does that make some sense? And so a lot of struggle. We don't believe he's God. We believe he's the son of God because if he was God, he wouldn't do this, that, and the other thing. Well, he's holding both natures in himself, in order to bring us into his divine nature in our own nature. He's holding the humility aspect in order that that humility called his incarnation would also be honored at a certain point in time in human history for the world to see. Y'all got that, right? And that's, so he's telling us the same trajectory he walked down, we have to walk down, right? Before honor is humility. And so that's what we see. He made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a, there it is, Dulos, and was made in the likeness of men. And that's even going lower. <laughs> to be made in the likeness of men is even more subservient than being a servant. Verse eight. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. That's our word, right? I love this. This is what is called a reflexive verb. He intentionally humbled himself. He was not forced to be humbled. He humbled himself. He, subject, humbled verb, himself, object. That means he voluntarily condescended to operate within the limitations of humanity. That's what we get out of the John 13, 15 15 text, right? I being your Lord am now serving you. That's extremely important for us to comprehend around where our trajectory is as, as believers. And he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, Verse 9 opens up with what we call a conclusive clause. Wherefore he earned the right. Right? Wherefore God hath also highly what? Honored him. Right? Honored him. Honored him because he started off with humility as a trajectory and as a telos and as a purpose and as a journey. And now he's highly what? Honored. That's that's who he is in the world. Jesus is Lord. Listen to the language. Wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow every of things in heaven of things in earth and of things under the earth. Profound. Everything is under him because of that. Now, I'm framing that because when we're in a father child relationship, the child is promised to one day bear equality with the parent. But for a season, that child must walk in humility. That child must be a servant. See what I'm getting at? Right, so that's kind of where we are. All right, let's go back to our text. What I want to do now is build on what Paul said here in First Corinthians chapter 4, verse um, 6. The latter part is going to be subpoint C. It's going to say. Now these things brother and I have in a figure transferred to myself and Apollos for your sake. We need you to check us out how we live, how we act, how we collaborate, how we are walking in unity, how we are walking in humility. We want you to do that in order that you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is what. So the conduct of the believer if it's going to serve as a replica of Christ must be confined to the parameters of scripture. The conduct of the believer must never be such that he or she derives their motivation or their authority outside of the word of God. You don't get to go outside of the word of God to build any kind of replica of God in the name of representing him. Does that make some sense? And I'm gonna get ready to show you why. It's because even with the apostle Paul, what he knows is as an apostle positioned to be a foundation pillar of the church, he doesn't get to exercise his own authority. He doesn't get to push his weight around and exercise what I've said parents will often do with their kids, pull rank arbitrarily and tell the kids to do something for which the kids are wondering, where do you get the authority to tell me to do that? And if the parents don't have the ability to say, my grounds for authoritatively telling you to do this is God, then now we are abusing our relationship with our children. And any pastor or any teacher that would model themselves or fling onto you some representation, whether it's propositional Uh, rhetorical or by way of conduct or behavior, because you will be moved by my behavior. If my behavior exceeds the boundaries of scripture, I am abusing my relationship with you. Now, remember, when we get to the end of our study, this is going to be critical because what I'm really mapping out for you is the crazy world that our children are in because of the jacked up relationships between them and their kids. And it's really bad today because parents have not operated out of the parameters of biblical authority. Y'all get what I'm saying? So notice what Paul said. We're behaving the way we're behaving because what we don't want to do by our behavior is draw you outside of the scope and parameters and limitations of Scripture as your justification to act the way we do. Because children will act like their parents. And if parents are acting stupid, kids will. Am I making some sense? All right, very good, very good. So we want to set on that under point number three, just briefly, and look at uh, three subpoints: the boundaries of holy what? Writ. So I, I'm often quoting Scripture as the ground of our thought, the ground of our, our epistemology, the ground of our whole system of salvation. Isaiah chapter 8:20 gives us a parameter, a precept, a precept of parameters. Notice what it says: "To the law, that's the word of God and the testimony. That's the message of Christ in the word of God. Law is Torah. And for the Old Testament church, that's all it was called was Torah, or what we would call the, um, the Tanakh. And that would be the law of the prophets and the Psalms. To the law and to the testimony, the inherent message in the law are the limited parameters of divine revelation that you and I are subject to and free to occupy. Outside of that We're we're in a whole nother ballpark to the law and to the testimony. If men don't speak according to this word, it's because they have no what in them. Right. So whatever light is emitting from men and women, it's not of God. So God always works in his people by his word. His word is light. That's why John underscored that metaphor in John chapter one, verses one through five. And the light was the life of men. I am the light of the world. John chapter eight, verse 12. If a man follow me, he will never walk in darkness. God is light, James says, and there is no darkness in him at all. Jesus is the light of the world. That's another ego I mean. I am the light. God is light. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse number three. And God said, let there be what? So again, when we deal with that light metaphor, that phosphorus in the New Testament, we deal with the light metaphor, we're dealing with a brilliance that brings clarity to the darkness. Brilliance that brings clarity to the darkness, because that's the metaphor of a light penetrating into the darkness so that we can see what the darkness is. Without light, darkness is there, but it's not distinguishable in its granular parts. You need light to see darkness. This is the problem with fallen humanity. It can't see the evil that it's in. All right. So, that's one verse. Another verse that will underscore our point is 1 Peter chapter 4:11. In 1 Peter 4:11, we are also admonished to make sure that the confidence of our exhortation is confined by that which is written. Listen to what he says. If any man speak, that would be any man, any woman, any child, anyone that professes to be a believer in God. Let him speak as the what? Oracles of God. So that is the words of God. So when I speak or when you speak, what, it, what we want it to be is based on Scripture. So when someone says, what do you mean by that? Can you tell me where you get that imperative, where you get that exhortation, where you get that warning, where you get that threat, where you get that idea? You can take them to the Bible. You can demonstrate a logical correlation between what you are saying and what scripture says. Does that make some sense? That also means, ladies and gentlemen, God lets you and I freely use our own words, but they must be anchored to his thought. So the thought frees you up to express, but that expression must proceed from a root proposition, that justifies the expression. Does that make sense? Right. So like we can take one precept of God and it will allow us to express at length. And if it's done faithfully, everything we are expressing will have its, have its origin in that root and God will honor that. Okay. This is why we are called to be teachers. What I'm getting ready to say here is simply this. God expects us to explain his word. OK, so that otherwise we wouldn't need teachers. If, if, if the word was self-explanatory at the level of, uh, of immediate obedience with accuracy, God would never use the mediation of teachers. Did y'all get that? If he gives gives teachers, he wants us to teach his word, unpack his word, unfold his word, expound his word, explain his word. Right. That's a beautiful thing. Teachers are wonderful gifts to the church. Here it is. And if any man minister, let him do it as the ability with which God gives that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever. I love that, 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 that again, that Hannah clause, that purpose clause. Why do we speak as of the oracles of God and try to be as faithful as we can with it in order that God might be glorified and be glorified through Jesus Christ and be glorified through Christ to the praise of God Almighty? Now, no, now notice what it says in order that God in all things may be glorified. Well, I'm getting ready to talk about that. OK. Glorification over against being puffed up. So we want God glorified. So in order to secure that possibility, we have to stay within the parameters of Scripture for it to be done. That would in, that would imply and infer that if we are disciplined enough to know Scripture and communicating to men and women, the Holy Ghost will help us. He will help us by taking our words, which are anchored to God's word and blessed to the hearts of men and women. And it will direct them to God. That's the goal. OK. And in it not will not only direct them to God in the generic sense. God help us. But in the specific sense of God being revealed redemptively in the person of Christ, because that's what it just said. All right. So listen, I'll just put a parenthesis here. The other area of extreme difficulty in our world is men and women are to a large degree legitimately inclined to talk about God in the generic. But when we become much more concrete and specific about how God has revealed himself, that's where the offense comes. And here's the reason why. The son has revealed the father within the framework of Moral, ethical, spiritual, and filial obedience. When you call the world to moral, ethical, and filial obedience, it rages like a demon. Did you hear what I just stated? This is how we know the elect from the non-elect. This is how we know the lost from the saved. This is how we know the rebel from the subservient. Those who are subservient to God, as Jesus said in John chapter eight, he that is of God, hears my voice. My sheep hear my voice. And and this is where the world hates and consistently and relentlessly seeks to divest itself of God's authority. Because what they don't want to become are obedient sons. They'd love to have a generic God, because with a generic God, you have a generic rule and a generic rule means you can do whatever you want to. Like we're going to learn again on Sunday and out came the God. It just came out the fire, just out the fire. What a postmodern irrational fantasy that is, right? But that's where we are. All right, let's keep going. All right. um, On the point number three, we want to move on. I'm sorry. I need to uh, just uh, deal with point sub point B under point number three. The reason why we want the boundaries of our labors and love and discourse and expressions and modeling and replication to be within the bounds of holy writ is because it mitigates against what pride Pride. this is what paul meant when he says if we keep it within the boundaries of scripture we won't misrepresent man see man is by nature outside of god proud and he arrogates to himself since the fall of mankind qualities that in some cases exceed the qualities of God this is what makes him more like the devil than anything now listen to how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 12 I'm going to read verse 1 through 5 and then I'm going to read one more and I'm just letting you know this is what the battle is this is where the battle is and I see it I see it vividly you guys as I am going into the different rabbit holes of arguments historically. And as I am seeing the manifestation of this neo-Marxist cultural transformation at the most profound levels of which humanity has never, ever experienced before, the levels of assault and attack, the levels of infiltration and influence the levels of domination and distraction are so profound but it's only so because we're living in a 21st century uh context where there are there are so many apparatuses the enemy can use to actually bring men and women into a kind of subjection of seizure and control does that make some sense Right. And I didn't even explain that as adequately as I should have. But here's what Romans 12 one says. I beg you. Therefore, I beseech you. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. What what Paul says here is you and I are not dead sacrifices. We are living sacrifices. You and I are not lambs that are led to a cross and then slaughtered in, in the literal sense. We are living lambs that live sacrificial lives. That means that the essence of our life should have a sacrificial component to it. That's what it means to be a servant. I'm just here to let you know. And when you and I are walking in maturity, you know that sacrifice is what we're called to because that's what Jesus was called to. He humbled himself. Verse two, and do not be conformed to the world. I love this negative Uh, uh, opening clause. Do not be conformed to the world. You know what that means? That means the world is going to try to conform you. And be not conformed to the world. This is a passive, uh, passive uh, present indicative verb form. Passive present means you don't keep yourself from being conformed, but you make sure what is happening keeps you from being conformed. In other words, submission to God, dependence upon God, Desiring God to transform you, puts you in the passive and puts him in the active. Does that make some sense? Because what that's going to do is keep you from failing, because you and I will fail if we are employing our own strength to keep from being conformed. So it says so when it says and be not, that is a passive verb structure. It's like you must be what? Born again. You don't make yourself born again. God makes you born again. No human being makes themselves. And so it's a passive verb of imperative, which presupposes, you know, that if it's going to get done, God's going to have to do it. Does that make sense? This is really simply demanding that we maintain a relationship with God because there's just some things that God is going to have to help us with. There are other things he resources us to do. There's no doubt about it. But there are some things he's saying it must be. OK, and what that means, all right, Lord, it's time for you to work. And then Philippians 2, 12 comes into play, right? For God must work in us the will and to do of his good pleasure. All right. So now be not conformed to the world, but be transformed. Another passive verb with the same verb tense. It's a passive verb in the present tense. Do not continue being conformed to the world. Be continually. What's the word? Transformed. metamorphosis. It's the same term that's used in his root when Paul says, and I have transferred to myself and Apollos in a figure, a model of what we're trying to tell you to do. So we get to look at Paul and Apollos and see the humility, to see the collaboration, to see the uh, service and say, oh, that's the model. That's what we want. Here, God is saying this has to be a transformational process in your life. This is arguing my point. Here's the point that this is arguing for me. That man by nature is not naturally humble. He has to be transformed. That man is not by nature on a trajectory towards God. He's on a trajectory away from God. So he has to be converted. He has to be turned and he has to be changed. Does that make some sense? And what God is saying to you and me is not only does he have to be, he has to continue to be. So if you have started being transformed, you must continue to be transformed. Makes sense. This in the present indicative verb form. But be transformed by the renewing of your what? That's the battlefield. That's the battlefield. If they get your mind, they got your body. Remember, I told you think, feel, then act. If they get your mind, they they got you. If they get your mind, they can manipulate your feelings and they can manipulate your volition. And this is what we see happening from the ground up right now. Scary. Because it's happening from the ground up and it's happening everywhere like rabbits mating. And we're wondering, you know, how come it's so prolific? And we need to understand these things as children of God. And we need to be in a healthy way alarmed. Okay, so notice what he says in order that you might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I love this because uh, newer Christians and it's not this is not always not the case for older Christians. Newer Christians are always wrestling with what is God's will. And I have to keep saying you just got to continue the process of transformation. Right. Because you transform into that epiphany. You don't just find it one day. You transform into that epiphany. That epiphany is a correlation of time and development and providence. You meet that epiphany at a level of growth that God determines that allows you to understand it when that event occurs. That's what we would call technically kind of an aha moment. Right. Right. But really, it's just an epiphany, a revelation that comes at a level of maturity that allows you to embrace it with an understanding. Right. Um, And what we're trying to know and prove and test and make right is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What a great um, condition and status to be in when we are pretty sure that where we are at that time is in the will of God. Does that make sense? We don't always know that. May I argue for that? We don't always know when we are in the center of God's will. So don't be um, moved by that. We don't always know. So I'm going to argue for why God compelled me to take us through the Old Testament. I actually love the Old Testament because it gives us grand narratives, macro narratives for us to settle in. You and I learn best when we have big building blocks. There are a lot of people that love to get lost in details. But details are not the way you stay on the main highway. The way you stay on the main highway is big blocks. Details are short intervals before getting back on. And if you do them right, you can actually have more confidence when you get back on. If we're using the metaphor of a highway, does that make some sense? Like getting off and getting a really good meal and get to enjoy the nuances and aesthetic beauty of that little side venture up. But it's time to get back on the main highway. For us, main highway is sound doctrine that we have to be affirmed in over and over again in terms of who God is, who Christ is, who we are, who we are in Christ, what he did, why he did it, and where we're headed. Those kind of things have to be constantly affirmed. And then we can get into the nuances, but we're not lost in the forest for the trees. Does that make some sense? Well, in the wilderness, what my point I'm going to be arguing is this. The reason why God gives us a cloud and a pillar of fire it's to keep us on course. Did that make some sense? Okay. So, you know, I'll just do this because I want to reward you for coming out. You know, people don't like to do Bible study. It's stupid, but they, they should. Here's a beautiful thing. God took Israel out of Egypt. Egypt had all kinds of highways and bus signs and stoplights and signals in everybody. Google was all on top of Egypt. Soon as they crossed that Red Sea into the wilderness, No guideposts, no roads. They are in the wilderness. Now they have to close their eyes and open the eyes of faith and hold on to God's hand as he leads them through the wilderness in the daytime by a pillar of cloud and at night by a pillar of fire. That's called walking by with an assurance that God is with us. Right. Uh, and so I, I'm arguing that sometimes it's not easy to know whether I'm in the will of God in any specified way. The way that I can be kept, however, is by the promises of God. I will never leave you nor forsake you, right? But what we're going to learn on Sunday is that God will distance himself for you, from you if you act a fool. So oh, you want Oh, you you didn't figure out how to get there. All right. I'm going to hide for a second. Let me see what you do. Let me see what you can do. OK. Oh, you can get there on your own. You, you have you have started your own fire, as Isaiah said. You've created your own light. Oh, let's see if that light can handle the winds of the wilderness. And you and I know they can't. Some of us already know we will every now and then lose our mind and then try to use human intellect to carve out our pathway. Human rationale, human logic, human paradigms, human models, and immediately we we sense deep down inside that we uh, we have chosen an inferior route, right? But in pride, we'll follow it out. And inevitably, it leads you to more darkness. All right. Okay. That's good. So now verse three through five, I want to get there. I've been there way too long. For I say through the grace, through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, here it is again, not to think this time of yourself. Don't think of other men above that which scripture is written, but don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think. That's really good. Remember what I said? Mankind is not humble by nature. And the statistics have already been done that most people will evaluate themselves in a positive light when no evidence is there to affirm the thing. (laughs) They will say that they're this way, that way or the other. But if you really press into it, there's no grounds for them to have that kind of positive affirmation of themselves. You see, we're much more biased towards viewing ourselves as good. And we do that when we don't have a scriptural premise to actually reflect upon as to the standard that God lays out about ourselves. Does that make some sense? You need to get that, because can I tell you something? And we're going to be going there in about 20 minutes. The world presently thinks it's good. It presently thinks it's good. This world system thinks it's so good. That not only does it not want God, it's actually um, ridiculing and blaspheming God. That's how arrogantly pompous this world is practicing a kind of self-righteousness. Are you keeping up with me? It is an open assault against God. And we're going to look at the verses to underscore it, but our video is going to frame it. What I'm sharing with you now. So once we look at the video, what I want you to capture is the word proud. All right. So let's let's keep going. Notice what he says. That men ought not to think of themselves more highly than they are, but to think what? Soberly, according as God had dealt to every man the measure of faith. And what the measure of faith is, is scripture. The measure of faith is this book. It's called the rule of faith. Okay. I'm letting you know what this is called a canon. This is our measure of faith. Your faith is defined by this. Your faith is limited to this. Your faith is strengthened by this. Your faith is kept by this. Your faith is built up by this. Please understand that your faith will not survive without this book. I'm trying to help you understand that text in a very functional way. We all have the fundamental measure of faith. It's the gift of God by which we believe on Christ. But that belief in Christ has to constantly be cultivated by God's word. It must or your faith will wither and be useless in storms. Right. It's very important. Um, Let me see if uh, verse four or five uh, can benefit me. No. All right. I want to leave that alone um, because we're there now. Uh, The next thing that I want you to see is Romans chapter 1st Corinthians, chapter eight, verse one and two. Paul deals with this a bit more. I want you to capture this because what he's going to talk about is the contradistinction between knowledge and love. And I want to actually prioritize them and show you how to deal with uh, Greek thought. And also Hebrew thought. I see this this model in the Old Testament. It's a it's a lot of ellipses in, in grammar when things are not said, but must be inserted or inferred. And if you don't infer them, you can create a wrong outcome when something is not said. So so watch how this goes. Now, as touching things offered unto idols, this is what we're dealing with in our Sunday service, are we not? So you're going to be able to pick some of this up on Sunday. Now, it's touching things offered to idols. We know that we all have what? Right. So now I want you to capture that because what he's getting ready to say is we have information. We have data. We are informed about the subject of idols. Did that help you now? Because that's going to be quite different from the idea of truth and knowing truth. Knowledge is simply a database by which we can assess something. With this knowledge, we can assess that what an idol really is versus what people say idols are. That's important because people make big ado about idols. But when you have knowledge about idols, here's what you come to discover. Now, as touching things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Now, be careful. Because knowledge puff it up. Do you guys see that? Now, the elliptical statement that needs to be put there is alone. Knowledge alone puffs up. Did that make some sense? Obviously, because we need knowledge. Remember, Paul would say it over and over and again. Brethren, I would not have you to be ignorant. So see what I mean by you got to carefully infer the elliptical statement that's not there in order to help you not draw a conclusion that's contrary to the meaning of Paul. Here he states, we know that we all have knowledge and knowledge puffs up. If we were to leave it like that, we would all be saying, we know that we all have knowledge, which means we're all puffed up, <laughs> right? Right? Now he says, here's what is called the qualifying statement. Love edifies. Now what he's doing, he's playing on a dynamic of elevation. He's playing on a dynamic of increase. So I want you to capture this. I want you to get this. I would take, uh, love, I would take um, charity edifies, knowledge puffs up, and draw a line and create a ledger. On the left side, I have knowledge puffed up. On this side, I'll have charity edifies. Y'all got that? Y'all got that category? So under knowledge puffs up, charity edifies, I would have all of the things that looks like what it means to be puffed up. All of the different expressions, phenotypes. And then I would have all of the different qualities and expressions and, 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 uh, and, and, and characteristics of what it means to edify. Did that make some sense? Right. Because once you get a proposition planted, you want that proposition to be embodied in a composite for it to be understood. That's the purpose of proposition to embody in a composite to be able to have a vision of something comprehensively. So when we look at puff up, we can look at pride, we can look at arrogance, we can look at anger, we can look at rage, we can look at narcissism, we can look at uh, sociopathic behavior, we can look at pathologies, all kinds of qualities of human uh, demerit that fall out under, I have a PhD. Right? Right. And so when we get over to the area of love edifies... Now we're talking about agape that always flows into and actually reaches down into the nature of a thing to cause that nature to take root and to grow up and to manifest according to its calling in nature. It's not distorting. It's actually magnifying the thing according to its nature and building it up so that it comes into the fullness of what it's meant to be from a seed to perfection. Did that analogy come home? That's what we want with love because we see that epitomized in the father sending his son. Right, you guys got that? Right, so this will help on a practical level because in the world in which you and I live, the enemy is actually inverting these propositions and putting it on top of your head that knowledge edifies. Because it doesn't want to own a, an agape love because it can't be the origin of that. To get agape, you got to submit to God. You actually have to believe that God is. So they are bound by a matrix of knowledge, which literally is the Greek term gnosis from which we get the term science. So we have in one category of the ledger, the science man. And on the other uh, uh, category of the ledger, we have the spiritual man. I taught you guys this three years ago. The difference between the science man and the spiritual man in our world. We have an antichrist system that is scientific in its fundamental argument and false confidence. On the other ledger, we have the godly man who is rooted in a fear of God, walking in the humility and model and hoopadime of Christ. And it serves to edify our world to the degree that we are walking in application. Does that make some sense? All right. Very good. Very, very good. Notice what he says in verse two. Verse two, and if any man thinks that he, what? He must know that he knows nothing yet as he ought to. I love that. That's a trifold negation around a false use of knowledge. If you know something, this is what you need to know. You need to know that you don't know anything as of yet. Right, so guess what he's done with the concept of knowledge. He's kept knowledge from being able to participate in perfection. He's kept knowledge from being able to participate in perfection. You can never be perfected through knowledge. Did that make some sense? Right. So you know where Paul is going with 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right? When I was a child, I thought I was a child. I functioned and act like a child. When I matured, I put away childish things, right? He says, now these three abide, faith, hope, and love. Because there's a time coming when knowledge will fade away and tongues will cease and prophecies will come to an end. So right now, genosis is a tool for the believer, not an end uh, of the means. Our goal is not perfection in some kind of hyper Gnostic set of demerges that come up out of a pagan false God system. Does that make some sense? And yet that's where your world is because your world wants to bring utopia in, in artificial Gnosticism, artificial science. Artificial intelligence is Gnosticism at its highest level of intimate application of all data. The idea is bringing all data together in a structure by which that data then can take on a self-learning for itself, and emerge as a God over humanity. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah, like you have to because, again, Yvonne Harari plainly said it. There's enough information being gathered into our computer bases at the artificial general intelligence level until it can reach a level of which I've talked to you guys about before, singularity. And singularity is when all the data has converged into one kind of blockchain system and is so intricate in its, in its system that it can actually present itself to us across the totality of all human needs. And when that becomes the interphasing with human beings, that all we ever need to do is to ask AI, we are now in a relationship with AI as we would be with God. Did that come home? Did that come home? Right. So it's extreme. Now, what's going to keep you from that delusion is this, that knowledge can never perfect you. Am I helping you? Yes. Right. So, because it's attention, we we use knowledge, but we must not abuse it. We have to make sure knowledge is subservient to truth and love. That's going to be important to get, because like, knowledge is not truth. Knowledge is information. Lies are knowledge. Error, falsehood is knowledge deception, conniving, wickedness, perversion, destruction. All that's knowledge-based too, isn't it? So when we're talking about truth claims in the, in the absolute axiomatic sense, what we're talking about is making a distinction between a wrong use of knowledge and a right use of knowledge. Wrong use of knowledge and a right use of knowledge. Me and my sons are talking about this stuff now because I already got one son in deeply engaged in AI because he does coding. So he's using it all the time and he sees the limitations in it and he sees the benefits in it. Got another son that's, uh, you know, studying pharmacology. So we're always talking biology. We're all molecular science and we're talking AI as well, because AI is used in all of your universities now to help accelerate the process of data gathering so we can work through projects much more quickly. Y'all already know that we're, we, can, we can use it at, at present for our own resources and it gives us all kind of information doesn't it does it but that information is not always correct and that information is not always good and that information is not always right now I want to say this again so it can come home if it's not always correct if it's not always good if it's not always right then it is in danger of being deceptive does that make sense if it's not always good if it's not always correct if it's not always right The onus is on you not to be deceived by the data that is given to you by artificial intelligence. Am I making some sense? I'm going to go on in a moment, but I'm letting you know where the challenge is for you and me. Okay, say we got this absolute beast of a computer system that is able at our beckoning call to resource us 10,000 peer review papers on a particular topic. How did it correlate those papers? What was this decision-making preset mechanism? Why did it correlate it in a way that it drew a conclusion that it did, that when I read through, I go, I don't agree with this. Is what they are doing telling me that they have given me the absolute truth? No. They've just given me data, data that was already prerequisitely ordered by somebody else. And many of the algorithmic systems in that computer program are biased on the part of those who who coded the program. Am I making some sense? So I smell a devil in the system. Right. Knowledge puffs up and it will take down anybody that trusts it as a God. Now, on the other side of the equation, I'm going somewhere. Y'all all all right with me? On the other side of the equation, what I am worried about with human beings is that we're becoming so gullible. That AI is going to lie to us, even though you're warned. Don't let it lie to you, but you're going to let it lie to you anyway, because you're not going to do the hard work of discerning. And because it feels good to be lied to, it feels really good to be lied to. Ask Eve, it feels good to be lied to. Am I making some sense? You might say, "Oh, pastor, it doesn't feel, it does feel good to be lied to. It really does. Frequently, it does not feel good to be told the truth. I'm sorry, it's true. Ask Jesus, they killed him. Ask John, they killed him. Ask the prophets. They kill almost all the prophets. Ask the apostles. They killed almost all. Why, if the truth is so amenable to our nature, they killed everyone who spoke the truth? Am I making some sense? So now we have to watch out for ourselves. What God would tell you and I to do is prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. Remain objective. Learn how to use knowledge aright. Understand it's limited and it will never what? perfect you. Your perfection comes by faith in a relationship with somebody else who has already passed all the tests. Did that make some sense? Right. Very much so. This will also keep you from losing your mind because some of us will only be able to go so far with data. We don't have the gray matter to handle all of the the nuances that go into science disciplines. Does that make some sense? Right. Some of our, you know, Synapses are blown when we have to study more than 30 minutes. It's a good thing we're saved by grace and not by knowledge. We're saved by his knowledge, but not our knowledge. This is why God in the humility of Christ gives men and women the call to faith. I can rest in God when I don't have the answer. Did that come home? That means I can accept the fact that the cloud is present to lead me because there are no roadmaps in this desert. And I can accept the fact that the fire will be there at night to protect us from all of the predators when we take our rest. That's called walking by faith. Would you agree with that? Yeah. All right, let's keep going. <clears throat> I think I got one more verse. Verse 3, maybe. First Corinthians 8, 3. But if any man love God, there it is. The same is known of him. That's powerful. So he gives us a contrast between love and knowledge. He gives us a contrast between the man that's pursuing knowledge, which can never perfect him. And the man or the woman that's pursuing love, which love is itself perfect. Love promises to perfect. Is that what your Bible says? Absolutely. Right. Perfect love casts out fear. Love has the capacity to fill you up and perfect you in Christ. And that's what it does. So love is able to occupy knowledge. It's also able to occupy error and falsehood. Love knows how to handle all of these struggles and challenges because it knows how to embrace truth and reject falsehood. It knows how to mitigate the harm that comes from error, sometimes the error we commit. Unwittingly or wittingly, love can actually accommodate that. Does that make some sense? Love covers a multitude of sins. It's a beautiful thing. And so when you meet a man or a woman that's walking in the love of God, they are going to be characteristically different. They are. They're actually going to walk in a humility slash boldness slash confidence that makes no sense unless you know what love is. Does that make some sense? Right. Because they won't be necessarily able to pull a PhD out but they will, they will be able to say God's in control. All right, let me see if we can keep going. I want to press into something else before we go into Q and A. All right. So, oh, point number four, this one is good. I, I need to get into point number five too, but I'm definitely wanting to get here. This is really interesting. So the next thing that Paul is doing by virtue of confining us to scripture is that when we confine ourselves to scripture, it engages in the demolishing of the party spirit. Did that make some sense? Maybe, maybe not. Let's go to work. Look at verse seven, verse seven. For who makes you to differ? Right. So what is Paul engaging in now? The party spirit that he opened up dealing with in chapter one, verse, verse eight and nine and 10 and 11, when he says, now some of you are saying you are of Paul and you are of Apollos and you are of Cephas. Is that not a party spirit? It's a spirit of division. It's a spirit of individuation. It's a spirit of uh, being other than someone else. Agreed? So when he says, oh, okay, who made you to differ? Who gave you the right to individuate yourself as a group over here with Paul and a group over here with Peter and a group over here with Apollos? And a group over here with the Baptists, with the Pentecostals, with the Congregationalists, with the Presbyterians, with the Catholics, with the Greek Orthodox, and on and on and on. Who gave you the permission to do that? See what I'm saying? So one has to sit on that for a moment and think through why are are we in group categories? Right. So I want to help you with that by staying home for now, because this requires you having some understanding of church history, which is another problem for Christians and human beings at general. Christians are not redeeming the time. And so Christians are ignorant of history. And Marxism loves for you to be ignorant of history because its goal is to um, distort history and give you a false history. So if you don't know history, then you don't know what happened in order to what's getting ready to happen again? Because we know what happened yesterday is going to happen today because it is a process of recapitulation as a rule. That which has been is and that which is to be has already been. So there are fundamentals to present realities that are rooted in the past So when you and I are dealing with the kind of matrix we are engaged in now, you can only really understand the framework, the foundation, and the objective of this matrix by going to the past. And when the church doesn't understand church history, the first 500 years of church history, the church does not understand heresy. And I told you this a few weeks ago. You meet your average Christian today and they don't know what's wrong. And, and the 21st century Christian does not know what I taught this church about 15, 20 years ago. That all of your historic ancient heresies, these kind of false doctrinal teachings, these pagan systems and these pagan ideas have left the church and entered into and invaded the space of our secular systems. So the demon of pride and the demon of greed and the demon of money and the demon of sex and the demon of perversion and the demon of all kinds of things are showing up in our secular systems as pseudo gods, drawing men and women into it. Does that make some sense? Very much so. So much so. That most of the titles on the names of the buildings that you and I are so used to frequenting, we don't even know the origin or meaning behind those names. And a lot of times those names are indicating what dark demonic ideology is the construct that is governing the principles of that company. Am I making some sense? Right. And we just jump in there headlong not knowing that they're gradually drawing us into a web of matrix to suck us dry because we have been defined by them as nothing but a consumer commodity. But every believer must know that every structure set up by men in this world is demonically controlled. You must know that as an a as an priori assumption. No matter how good it appears to serve you and me at the physical level, think about it. Caesar. Now, what did I just describe? Kaiser, the medical institution. See, her jaw just dropped. Her jaw just dropped. You got the revelation now. And we could go on with so many institutions. Am I making some sense? And they can do it because they know we're ignorant of the names and the history and the origins. And there's no kind of epiphany that comes when we read that the medical industry in the, in the West is dominated by companies that have their roots in a whole lot of esoteric religious mysticism which medicine has always done. Not sometimes, always. Now the believer has been called to be in the mix with all that. I talked to you about that last week. In the world, not of it. We got to make our way through it, but you just definitely got to understand Paul is in Caesar's house right now. Paul is in Caesar's house in, in the book of Philippians and Romans, etc. He's in Caesar's house. So he got to negotiate being in Caesar's house. But that doesn't make him Caesar's servant. We're in Caesar's house right now. I can tell you that for sure. But are we Caesar's servants? See what I'm getting at? And so many other things too. take your time, work through uh, General Motors, work through Ford, work through uh, IBM. There are so many that have their roots in pagan, mystical, cult religions. Why? Because the devil is always operating at high levels of intelligentsia. By the time it gets down to the common person, it has shape shifted into some kind of practical commodity that we are told that we need. Makes sense, doesn't it? Very much so. All right. So who makes you to differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did receive it, why do you what? As if you have not received it. Now, notice what he's saying here. Who makes you to differ? Why do you make a distinction? And then he says, what do you have? What do you have that wasn't given to you as a gift. And if it, if it was a gift, why are you boasting? That's the word glorying. I'm going to already talk about that, okay? Glorying. You're glorying as if it wasn't given to you. As if it's intrinsic to your nature. As if you were born with it. And it makes you different. Does that follow? That's the argument going going on by Paul. What Paul is fundamentally saying is, and we see this with children. This is is an adolescent syndrome. You, You get a child and you know you have to teach that child to share. Do you know that? Because as soon as you give the child a gift, they take that gift in the first thing that comes out of their mouth and mine, as if he never received it as a gift. And so there is a misrepresentation of the origin of the gift in relationship to his possession of it or her possession of it. So they fail to yield the right attitude, which should be an attitude of gratefulness and gratitude for the gift versus a boasting that it 's mine am I making some sense right and so this is what 's going on in our account this is what 's going on in our account all right okay i want I want to work with that for a few more minutes. a problem we have here then is if God gives you something, you should actually give God gl- glory for it and if you don 't, the only alternative action would be to pretend that that gift didn't come from God, that it's yours to do with as you will. Again, that's the culture I live in. That's the culture I live in. I'm going to share a few more verses and we're going to watch a presentation for eight minutes. Now, what do I mean by this? I mean that when mankind rejects God as being the originator of life, the first cause of everything, the grounds of all. The framework by which everything exists, then, in rejecting God, man then, by default, must be his own creator. If, in fact, man is defaulting to himself being God, as arrogant philosophers have said god didn 't create man, man created god that 's an arrogation that ignorant, pompous philosophers assert that has no Um, logical coherence to it at all. But see, when you have lost a connection with axiomatic principles like first causes, then you can make these stupid propositions and then people can buy it. No, you didn't create yourself. Somebody else created you. Ain't no doubt about that. Please be sure of that. It might be the devil. It might be some weird angel it, who, who, whatever it is, you didn't create yourself. Therefore, you ultimately does do not get to define your own terms. The creator gets to define the created. Would you agree with that? So I, I'm, ju- I'm doing a shortcut to where I am going because I see what Paul is dealing with. Paul is about to lose children to chaos. He's about to lose a church to fornication, to idolatry, to perversion in religion, to false religion, to drunkenness, to uh, profligacy, to all of the maladies that I showed you on that list under the science man versus the spiritual man, which is evidence in our culture today. What's evidence in our culture today is a Corinthian manifestation of a disconnect from God because they are boasting as if they didn't receive life from God. Is it coming home, ladies and gentlemen? Now, the only other thing we have to do when some fool says, I made myself, is to watch what God does when he gives him up to that false proposition. That's right. Jeremiah, uh, not Jeremiah, start with Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. Listen to what it says. Wherefore, okay, go back to, uh, go back to verse 11. Because this is quite interesting. Uh, No, go back to verse, you can just start at verse 13. I'll walk through it. I think it's at verse 16. Now you guys have heard these words. Wherefore the Lord said, for as much as its people draw near to me with their mouth, And with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me. And their fear towards me is taught by the precept of what? So they have abandoned religion and have adopted science. Would you agree with that? Right. Now, who said that in the New Testament? Christ. And he was speaking about who? His Jewish brethren. Because see, Christ comes as a model of the father walking in love and they reject love for science. Y'all keeping up with me? Look at the next verse, because I want to show you what this looks like. Therefore, behold, I'll proceed and do a wonderful, marvelous thing among the people, even a marvelous work and a wonder for the wisdom of the wise men shall perish and the understanding of the prudent shall what? Yeah. They'll be blinded to truth. Isn't that what Paul said in first Corinthians two? God said that the wisdom of the world is foolishness and the foolishness of God is wise and that God would confound the wisdom of the world by the wisdom of of God, which is the gospel. This is why we had 2000 years so far of rationale in this world. uh, uh, Qualitative rationale, Uh, qualified rationale, verse 15. Woe unto them that seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord and their works are done in the dark. And they say, who sees us and who knows us? This is what we call the noetic effect of sin, because if you know God, you know, you can't hide anything from God. This is when you switch from the true God to an idol, because with an idol, you can hide from an idol. All you got to do is take a blanket and throw it over your idol and he, he can't see nothing. Shut the door on him and you can do whatever you want to. Verse 16. Here we go. Here we go. We're coming home. Surely your turning of things upside down. Now is that where we are today? Is it turned upside down? That's because they've rejected the true and the living God for science. See what I'm saying? Surely your turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the what? We know what that means. The potter's in control of the clay. The clay is not in control of the potter. You and I are nothing but a bunch of clay. Is that true? Listen to what he goes on to say. For shall the work that is the clay say of him that made it? He did not make me. Is that where we are today? I've been teaching this for 20 years on the radio. I've been warning against this time we're in by this verse for 20 years. I've been saying, go to this verse and you'll see what humanity is saying is God did not make me. That is the battlefront going on at this very hour. God did not make me. God did not make me. I made myself and I can make myself over into whatever I want to make myself over into. That's where we are today. Is that where we are? Listen to what he says. He did not make me or shall the thing framed of him that framed it say he had no understanding. Now God tried but he was stupid. See it? Look at the next verse. Is not is it not yet a very little while and Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be esteemed as a forest. Verse 18. I think I want to go to verse 19. And in that day, the deaf shall hear the words of the book and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. And one more verse, the meek also shall increase in their joy in the Lord and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. So coming up out of this very dark passage is a promise of men and women who behold the glory of God in Christ and come into a saving knowledge of him and joy because of it. So you're juxtaposing a journey into darkness and a journey out of darkness. Did you guys see that? It's very important to see because what I want to talk to you about in terms of what's going on for the next several years in our world. Over the next several years, things are going to get increasingly more dark than you ever have known. Increasingly more dark than you ever have known. That's by design. A blitz is on already. But God promises to hold the hand of his elect and and, and walk them through that darkness as long as they don't exchange the true and the living God for idols. Now, every day of your life, you're going to be challenged to abandon God. Every day. And you're going to watch loved ones abandon God every day. They're going to abandon God and succumb to the idol of science. This is where they will argue with us. God didn't make us. We are the products of an evolutionary developmental process that took millions and millions and millions of years to occur. Therefore, there is no moral imperative for me to be limited in my self-expression. Wow. This is your kids coming out of college thinking like this. do act like this is a strange thing. This is why they don't come to church anymore. Am I making some sense? See, they're buying into a strong delusion, which I'm going to teach on Sunday, because, boy, how stupid do you have to be to just 30 days earlier have a God speak speak to you and the whole nation in great clarity and give you a covenant of mercy and grace, and then you turn around and say, make us gods to lead us to the promised land. How stupid must you be, right? But mankind is known to be notoriously stupid. All right, so, the next thing I want to deal with so we can shut it down and and and, uh, and move forward is under point number four, demolishing the party spirit. What makes you to differ? Subpoint B, the subtle making of what? Tribalism. These are the categories that I'm talking about. And, and I've already told you that this was happening in the Corinthian community. This is what politics is about. Haven't I taught you guys that politics is all of what always about division, always about division always about division. So, Just a small caveat here. I want to shut it down. i shut it down on that part because once we move towards the election, I'm going to have to constantly fan the flames of biblical light up against the impulses of the political spirit that some of us are naturally salivating to get into. Did you hear what I just stated? Men and women abandoned Jesus for about Six months out of the year, every time the politics come along. And I'm going to ask God to give me grace to show you how not to fall prey to a left-right plantation narrative. Because it's so very important. It's so very important. It's so extreme today. There is no distinction between the left and the right at the fundamental level of abandoning a, bi- a biblical worldview. And right now I'm working with people to help them understand the apostate leanings of the Republican Party into an acceptance of the homosexual paradigm, which if you open that door, that means you throw away scripture. That means you cannot militate against transgenderism. If you have no authority to establish the approval of homosexual marriage, you have no authority to reject transgenderism. Your moral imperative is simply opinion. It's simply arbitrary. Am I making some sense? I get that don't touch the children, but I also get that strategically the enemy is moving us closer and closer to the idea that at some point some children need intervention. Because this is called incrementalism. It's incrementalism. Am I making some sense? And, 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 and so the folks that are blinded by having crossed over into the Marxist deconstruction of male and female at the relational level, i.e. same sex relationship, they feel pretty moral right now that they are not the center of biblical scrutiny. Because the pump cart plantation wagon has moved along from the homosexual argument, which Obama sealed the doom on in 2008 through 12. So now they're in the camp. This is called apostasy. Now we're moving down the line and dealing with children. I don't know what the outcome of that is going to be because I see the parallels with that, with with the God, with the uh, Moloch idol. I see a parallel with that. I don't know what God is going to do to humanity, but I'm going to show you what the text says. After we watch this presentation. So I need uh, somebody to cut cut the two lights out. uh, uh, Just two lights. Don't cut all the lights out. Just a half the section. Pull that up and we'll need some volume on that, too. So I just want you to watch this for eight minutes. And re- remember, we're going to have some Q&A after this, because I want us to. Got to go way up, way up. So you can start it, Aquila and because we got time. Just get the volume up. So so we're wasting time while the volume is way too low. He, keep going. Keep going. Now, start it over again. Leave the volume up and start it over again. All right, I need you guys to pay careful attention to this and control your emotions because we need to talk about this logically.
1: My full drag name is Desmond is amazing. I feel very happy to have a mom that accepts me. It really touches me deeply that there are other children out there that he's reaching and they're listening to him and he's influencing them to be themselves. I'm very proud of him. I'm proud that he's found his path so early. My greatest joy in this is just seeing Desmond happy. I love doing drag because it makes me feel amazing and self-expressive. It just feels amazing to know that people love what I do. My one big message would be three words, be
0: yourself always. How you doing thanks for being here. Yeah.
2: i love that you love root beer caffeine free mm-hmm. i can get on board with that
1: my mom doesn't like me drinking caffeine does it make you
2: hyper yeah me too they don't like when i drink caffeine either but jasmine you're one of the youngest and first drag queen slash kids and I've heard, I've heard that you've gotten messages From young adults who look up to you for being who you are, what are some of the notes you've gotten?
1: Some of the notes I've gotten are like that you inspire me very much, and I wish I could have had the support that you have um, when I was a child.
0: And your parents. We saw your parents in the piece that we did, and your parents are so supportive of you, but they've also, they've encouraged you to stay and be who you are. So, how has that inspired you to be open about dressing and drag?
1: They support me by letting me do what I want to do, and, um, let me, um, dress up, and let me play with, um, makeup and trains, and, um, yeah, I really like trains. When I'm out of drag, most of the time I'm playing trains. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: it's, 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 it's a tough world out there, and not everyone's accepting of things, and some people have criticized you. What do you say to them?
1: Um, I, it's fine. Um... <laughs>
2: Desmond here, so thank thank you, you Desmond. But we also have some people that wanted to come see you personally. So please welcome of Lettuce. How are you? Thank
0: you for having me. And
2: we can't forget Melissa
1: mm-hmm. Edwards.
3: <laughs> <laughs> hello, Hello. Hello, How are you? See you. Right. Good morning to you. <laughs> huh. How cool good is this? America. <laughs> I'm not expecting this.
0: Shocked?
4: Happily shocked.
0: <laughs> <laughs> shocked. So 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 for for you three, when you when you see Desmond, what, what comes to mind? What do you think about? Inspirational. Yeah. Brave, courageous.
3: <laughs> I wish because i started uh doing drag at 15 years old and obviously not 11 but i wish even at that age that i could have had the courage that you have to do what you do and literally yeah. take the art Ooh. and put it in nation america wow. it's beautiful it's, beautiful.
4: it's, it's amazing america. yeah
5: the
3: future of drag so you have a
4: lot to live up to <laughs> <laughs> and,
3: and no i think one's... it's also awesome that you are blessed with parents that yeah. love and support you yeah. unconditionally. Yeah.
2: There are some special gifts you have for Desmond. You guys want to tell us what's out here real quick? Well,
3: I I see I I drew Desmond a little green-haired lady. It's 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 for you, it's to bring you good luck and prosperity in your future.
4: And to eat iceberg
1: lettuce good roughage okay here you go with tomatoes and cucumber absolutely and i brought you a gift basket of some look of my favorite
3: actually you know what let me actually hand it to you because i think you need to have it in your yes, hand
2: look at those lashes. it
3: is some of my favorite makeup essentials that i use <laughs> always and you know you can never have enough black eyeliners so my favorite black eyeliners in there And I have a makeup tutorial DVD, so uh, you can watch it and pick up a couple of tips and techniques. And I see a little unicorn bag. I can get on
2: board with that.
3: Well, Desmond, you know I'm a teacher over there, Beyond Belief Dance Company, and um, we would love for you to come take some dance classes. So wanted to bring you a quintessential I BBDC unicorn. It's got my favorite uh, rhinestone. You cannot be a queen without some diamond nails. <laughs> and some socks. It's got some pins. It's got a little notepad. Note: I want you to journal everything that you do because you truly are very brave and courageous. Let me give you this.
2: being here. Thank Desmond, you. your parents. Yes. Um, thank you for reminding us all to be who we are on the inside. You can check out Alyssa Edwards on Dancing Queen on Netflix now. Thank you, it
0: So now, this is really interesting. Yeah, bring me down some. How many of you have seen something of that nature before? Alright, so this is less than 50%. This is less than 50%. So, and this is just a good sample of how Naive, we are as to the progress. Did that make some sense? Right, so let's say that you're naive because, you know, you, life has you looking in different directions. I need that volume brought down some more, Andy. Uh, life has you looking in a certain direction, and maybe that direction that you're looking in is valid, but maybe not. Maybe you're distracted by things in this, in your own circle of interest. That could probably keep you from being more readily informed so that you can have an appropriate psychological and emotional response to something that many of us know is actually escalating like cancer right now across the globe. And let's say you are ignorant and you might be offended when a Christian is much more passionate and fervent about wanting to deal with this than you And that would simply be because you're ignorant. Did that make some sense? Right, because we're gonna walk through now the implications of why you shouldn't be ignorant and I shouldn't be ignorant either. Um, this This is not a situation to be indifferent about. How many of you saw what happened at the White House with President Biden and the gay agenda? There you go, even less, even less, even less. You didn't even see what happened with your president when he celebrated a whole uh, two or three hundred, maybe four or five hundred. Now, I don't even think it was that many, but many of them came out for a celebration. And in that process, they were walking around with their false boobs out because that's what they do. They push the envelope into the utter inappropriate. They cannot help themselves. They cannot be decent because the sphere and realm that they are in doesn't allow for a continuity of boundaries, okay? Pride Day or Pride Month, which we just came out of, had the trans and and others in that community completely naked in front of the kids and engaging in sadomasochistic sex. Did you know that? Right. So if you didn't, it's because, again, you're not paying attention to what's going on. All of this is grooming. All of this is training. All of this is normalizing society at levels in which if you are not careful to know it, you will bump up against it and find yourself flooded with a momentum of position that you weren't aware of now what i want to do with this is just kind of take questions and fill them back and forth for about 15 minutes if you guys want to i mean if the air is out of your lungs then we can just go home but what i do want to let you know is this is going to be everywhere in a minute everywhere and it's because boundaries have been broken so long at the family level, and we're not completely immune as Christians from the guilt, because we put up with a lot and have not, you know, properly spoken into the community at the prophetic level to stop this momentum. You can be sure of that. We are right back at, um, we are right back at Hitler's um, Mein Kampf period. And in the time when um, when there was a destruction headed towards, uh, you know, towards towards Germany uh, uh, and people were becoming blinded to it, you know, out of fear of standing up and speaking out because of all of the Marxist oppressive propaganda fear mongering. It's the same thing that's happening right now. Also, what you may not know, and I just want to put it out to you. They are explicitly saying they are coming for your children, just in case you don't know. I just want you to know they are explicitly doing it, which means they have some kind of bankrolling economic power force behind them. That's anticipating a pushback. So you got to You got to know that they're anticipating it It, because they're not dumb. The enemy engages in conflict with the strategy of taking many captive to himself so all right so i'm interested in in getting some ideas from you guys let's uh, who who wants to start who who has the mic do i, do I have a runner who, who's running with the mics because okay i'm gonna start with elisa how many mics we got out there we have four out who's running the mics who's doing the running who's doing the mics are you doing it right all the mics connect collected do does all, are all the mics out Okay, good. All right, that's what I needed to know. All right, go ahead on. With um,
4: praise the Lord for this teaching tonight, Jesse, because I'm uh, I'm pretty torn up about what a video I saw yesterday. And it had to do with three-month-old babies and a pedophile they caught. And I've been watching this go on. And before I was a Christian, before COVID, um, I probably would have been part of that sickness because i would i would read a lot of books and one of the last books i read about this was about a family that had a kid that wanted to be uh there was a boy that wanted to be a girl and and then i had a relationship with a girl that wanted to be a boy a young one and i was there for her and advocating for her to be what she wanted to be right or what he what she she wanted to be she thought she was a boy and it just shows me how corrupted that I was and didn't even know it i was just so part of the system right because i'd been propagandized with with everything yeah. and i didn't even go to college right but i was just part of the system sure and it's very it's very painful and i i have that that before i became a christian also and i've learned i had that need for tons of information and and i wasn't uh able to discern if it was right or wrong information and so i know a lot but now i'm i'm categorizing it into the proper the spiritual man versus the science science man and i've always been into health and you know eastern based medicine and all that thing and what what my what I, I feel like I'm seriously like going insane. Um, I, I'm so, in so much pain because of what I saw and what I know, and then I'm thinking about how how I could not be in pain with how I knew it before, and my sister Dawn is helping me um, about praying, and it's just it's so demonic sometimes that I can understand why people want to commit suicide. I mean, I can totally see it. Totally. totally. And uh, I know we're we're to pray. And I mean, I had to drag myself here today. I mean, I could barely even move after watching this video, which sure. is, it was a it was on COVID and coffee. Sure, I know and, where it is. Yep. And um, I'd learned about two years ago about pedophilia with babies, and I called my brother Richard, who was a SWAT in San Francisco, and he was he broke over that too because he was investigating that and he almost like lost his mind. And so we he was talking to me about it because I I didn't even know like like babies, like how how like how do you even go there as a human with babies? Demonic. It's demonic. And so I kind of categorized it at that point because it was before I was really into being a Christian and now I'm just trying to find some place to put it where I know I'm going to be helpful with this because, I mean, I I don't hold back with anyone right now with this whole thing with the kids. I mean, even in my neighborhood, I was talking to a a guy that I've been friends with for a long time. His wife's a a judge. And he was telling me that he feels it's okay to teach kids gay sex as sex ed. Right. And I'm just like, I I couldn't. He goes, oh, you know what? I know you disagree with me because I know. And I was used to be one of him. I used to be him. I used to be him. Sure. So...
0: I I just need help navigating. Uh, What what you're going to want to do, I got you, what you're going to want to do, because you have the ability, you have the gift, what you're going to want to do is learn to strategically uh, uh, approach those open doors where people either explicitly state that they approve of it or or in need of information and data. You're going to have to organize information and data and be ready to inform people like with your friend. I I understand, this is what I would say to him. I understand where you are, because I used to be where you are. Would you be willing to watch a presentation with me and have a conversation about it? That's being proactive. You actually have to do that because people are operating out of ignorance and presumption. Okay, so... The difficulty of explaining something to an ignorant person is almost insurmountable. OK, but if we can draw them into a presentation, if we are friends, can you cannot I, can I get you and your wife or whatever to come over or can we come over? And I want to show you a presentation. Then I want us to have a conversation about it. So that that's a that's a proactive strategic approach to it, which we all have to become ready to do. Imagine people, you guys having family members at a a gathering or event at your house and the subject matter comes up and let's say it's 10 of y'all and three or four of them are leaning in that position. Rather than just arguing, if you have a very terse, very nice presentation that deconstructs it, shows it for what it really is and gives the reasons why this is not good biologically, medically, socially psychologically, spiritually, you know, whatever the categories are, because there are many good presentations out there, many very good ones short enough to run. And then it becomes a conversation starter if we can pull them in by them simply asserting their position then we can help them see more and then they can walk away more informed, particularly if you don't have the gift of explaining in a few moments the complexity of it and the horror of it. You see what I'm saying? Because there's a lot of background, a lot of background to um, transgenderism and pedophilia and pederasty that goes way, 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 way back And it has never, ever stopped. It just went undercover. So the beast is emerging, as I've been teaching you guys for a long time, and becoming not only public, but policy now. That is what happened in the Roman Empire. Okay, so it's important for you to know. Um, Who has the mic? Um, Cindy.
6: So thank you, because that was my question, because I was automatically thinking I want to have appropriate tools so that I can draw the line in the sand I mean, Good Morning America, the President of the United States. I mean, and first of all, that wouldn't even be appropriate for a little girl to do that. That is so inappropriate for an 11-year-old to be behaving like that and that they're sensationalizing that on Good Morning America is just so disturbing. So a couple things come to mind. You can see how um, they, they, they are preying on that we have become weak. Yep. And they are preying on that they have seen that they can divide us. Yep. And so, um, and when they can divide our family and weaken our man, the head of the household, who's to, to be like you know, God, you know, our, our father, yep. um, then they then they know that they can hijack us. So, yeah, if anything comes, I mean, you always do this anyway, but that is good information that I can have on hand and just say because. To your point, sometimes you don't want to like have the wrong wording. You just want them to see for themselves and then just really be praying in the Spirit for the Holy Spirit to do the work. Like you say, you never really save yourself. Right. You, the Holy Spirit saves you. So right. if, you, if God gives you moments where you have very um, edifying information that the Holy Spirit can then show people— then hopefully that will spread because we can't just stick our head in the sand. We have to like stand up for these children because it is it's like it's like fire right now. It's so, so, so bad. One
0: hundred percent. And I would I would encourage groups of ladies to work as team and correspond on developing literature and presentations for the different stratums, introductory presentations that get at it at a basic level and then matriculate up to more complex um, presentations. Um, yeah, because I'm not gonna be able to correlate into categories any of the stuff. I send you guys a lot of stuff and and, and I, I try to do a balance between in-depth and kind of short and sweet and clear, but I really do wanna see us develop teams of people that can actually put together Um, uh, presentations so as to be ready to to um, fight the good fight of faith uh, and lay hold of eternal life for our children so the first thing that I would call up before we go to our next person I want you to I want you to understand how they use the term unconditional love did you catch that right so unconditional love this is why I militate against it this is why I said no Because I've been knowing this for 30 years that whenever the secular culture uses a term that gets by uncritically, then the church adopts that term. And that's because the church is a butt kissing, you know, seeker friendly system that wants to wants to facilitate the secular world. And it's uncritical. The church is uncritical in its thinking capacity. The church is to be prophetic and priestly prophetic and priestly. Prophetic meaning you have to have right, accurate, concise knowledge of what's right and wrong and be able to speak with the force of divine authority to shake people up when they're going in the wrong direction and you can't be you can't be ashamed about that. Um, the reason we are in the mess that we're in now is cuz the church has been spiritually uh, bankrupt and like the sleeping dogs of Isaiah 56, loving to slumber, loving to sleep afraid to bark, afraid to bark because they will lose 50 percent, 60 percent, 70 percent of their congregation. Whenever you have a barking pastor, that means something is on the prowl and people want to sleep. Uh, and so America is jacked up in that regard because we should be leading the front with local congregations preaching and pro- proclaiming and exposing the world to the prophetic Uh, standards of God and we're not doing it. That's unconditional love is a farce. You see what that means? We let our child do whatever our child wants to do. That's why I have militated against it and do do not let it into this congregation. Because what people don't know in our congregation is that every day someone is trying to come in and creep in with ideas and concepts to catch us where we're weak. And, and, and want us to drift into patterns of thinking that would open us up to the larger kind of non discerning Christian community that's out there. OK, I've seen this for years. You saw the dialectic working there. You've been taught that what the dialectic is, because that man there that was on the stage, he was a professional football player for many, many years. Very strong. He was a tight end. He was a man's man. He has been completely watered down now for decades now. He's watered down. And what you're going to see are more men and women completely watered down, completely watered down. OK, um, confused and, and and turned upside down, as we saw in Isaiah chapter 29. Who has the mic? Who's who has the mic? All fe- females first. All our females are done. All right. Yeah, we'll get the men in a moment. Go ahead, on, sis. Go ahead on, Donna.
3: Hello. So, what I um, watched in that video was first the child was on some type of medication. Yes, you, And I'm glad thing, you're
0: talking to it because how how could you not see the child as being distorted in its personality traits? on many levels how can you not see the child as a victim of some kind of psychotropes some kind of medication that is altering his baby how can you not see that and therefore that is technically a form of abuse right going on right another thing is that the father was actually
3: you could see him he was even afraid to look at the camera he was also there was no man there the man was on the left exactly no the woman wasn't a man either the woman was a crying baby she was saying, Look at me, look at me. It was right. all about them. Did you see that? It's it's always about the other person. It's never about that child. When we went to that library rally, every time I spoke to a person, it was all about them. It yeah. had nothing to do with the children. Got it. Nothing. It was all look at me. Right. And they're soulless. Yeah. They don't believe in life. They right. don't even believe in their own life. Right. And so when you're talking to these people, because I came out of that type of stuff, sure. I, I know right. I've had friends die of AIDS. I've had sure, in that did. life, I've had people try to come on to me and I was at the worst of my life when I was hanging out with them and we were giving ourselves up just for any kind of fleshly desire. Yep. It never amounted to any type of life. It That's was always right. death. Yep. And... Um, They have no care for these people. They are just it's it's the child is an instrument of their desires, what what they're going to feed off of. So they're basically
0: vampires sucking off of things that has no life. Agreed. Agreed. I I agree. That's a good assessment. And so the proverb says a child left to himself Mm -hmm. will bring his parents to shame. So when you love unconditionally, you don't set parameters, you don't set boundaries, you don't set controls, you don't set prisms of interpretation. You don't give a biblical worldview. You don't tell them what they really truly are. You leave them to themselves. And when you leave them to themselves, they cannot but grow up wild Mm -hmm. because they're going to be cultured by the world. Um, are you done? No, uh, okay.
3: actually, I just I have a problem looking at the stuff. I already know what evil is. I know how how dark and deep it can get. I I don't want to go there to see. I mean, when I hear about these things on the news or somebody says, "Did you see?" or whatever, I'm like, "No, I don't, I bounce my eyes. I'm like, I don't even want to know. I will stand though. I will say something. Right. I will be there right. if I see it. Right. I will." basically. But to me, I have to spend my time thinking on the beautiful things that God has done for me. And then that encourages me. That gives me uh, strength and conviction to walk the way that Jesus does. Like you were talking about the pattern. I have to pattern after him. He, he knew what, why did he come? Unless it was to save us sick, sick people. So right, I just, right. I, I, means, I have a
0: problem with that. Though. Right, which, well, good, because we need to pray for no, you. The tension. Yeah, we need to pray for you because in another sense, you don't get to make it about you. No. See how you can get trapped? I did. I'm trying to help you see yeah. how the mission is never accomplished by centering on yourself. So you have to be healed. So you can be disinterested at the level of caring about others. What? 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 say it again. Okay, I am going to say it. Did, did, did you get the mic? Did you get the mic from her? Right. So like when you are an advocate um, helping other people, you are not doing it from a motivation of self-need. You cannot be operating out of self-need to help other people. If you're thinking about yourself, you're going to second guess You're going to get emotional. You're going to um, you're going to be inhibited from actually a savior paradigm. So any when you my daughter is is a PA now, but she was an EMT and EMTs are people who go out and are intervening in some of the most horrific scenarios that anyone could see. And they don't know what they're going to come up against when they get out of the truck they have to be internally disinterested in themselves. To help other people, you have to be disinterested in yourself. So like what I'm doing tonight, and I want you to get this in the rightest sense, I didn't do this with thinking I need Donna to watch this. I'm doing this because I know that we're not broadly informed enough to actually even be in an appropriate way concerned about the escalation of it. The other thing I know is that that boy is one of your children. I know that. You, You don't have to even tell me that. That's one of your grandkids. That's one of your nieces. That's one of your nephews. Please understand we are not outside of this battle. So I've told you before, you got to map that stuff onto your own life and go, okay, what if I look up a week from now and I'm dealing with that in my own family? Do I just turn a blind eye and pretend the main thing that I'm supposed to do is kind of be on a Christian reservation, you know, kind of sticking my head in the sand? No way. No way. Not when you are called to snatch souls out of the fire snatch souls out. And to do that, you have to be disinterested in yourself. You have to have a motivation that rises above your own interests and limitations. It does have to be a calling, but all believers are called to share in some ways or another. Not everyone is going to enter into it in a direct way, but some are going to enter into it. Notice Donna and, and Elisa, they're sisters. One had a very different expression behind it than the other. That's completely okay. That's the nature of the gifts in the church. Donna is coming from a place of recovering from the wounds of living so deeply in it. And she's still admitting a level of trauma there. Can you hear that? And that makes sense. I totally get that. So you you can't go into a battle zone and not know your limitations and vulnerability. So you're saying you got to spend more time going deep into God's word. Great. When you're there, you're praying for those who are out there in the battlefield. You're praying for them if you're not there. Does that make some sense? That way we're still holding on to each other because some must go into that battle. That's just the reality of it, because God will show you that's going to be your child in a minute. We don't get to be disinterested because they're coming for your children. Uh, And so I, I totally get what she's saying, but I'm trying to get our congregation to understand the time is up. I'm sorry, it's up. We've had a good 20 years of being taught sound doctrine. And now that very battle that we've been talking about years in a comfortable space between it and now is up on us. And it's going to get even more egregious after a while, which it has done in many parts of the nation and around the world with Christian communities. We have been blessed to not be harassed by that beast on a full frontal level. But we are not guaranteed that that won't become a, a political challenge for us in a moment because they are fierce now. It is fierce. And the only thing that's going to stop their fierceness is the grace of God operating in the people of God to stand on grounds of righteousness with a solid understanding of God's word, because then we can love them in an appropriate way by the power of God. And that's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to be able to stand on righteousness, predicated upon a motive of love from God's grace and be able to speak into their lives in a very informed way or else it's going to mow you over. It's going to it's going to mow us over. Does that make some sense, ladies and gentlemen? You're just going to there are going to be times when that's going to be the battle for you. Um, Who has the mic? Uh, My sister. Hold on, Gigi. Uh,
7: Thank you, um, Pastor. I really appreciate you because there's not too many people out there speaking the way you do. And that's one of the reasons I'm here. I think back, hmm, maybe about my son just turned 30. And I think about when he was 8 or 10 years old and I took him to Children's Hospital out here in Oakland. And when they took him in a room and I was following behind my child, they told me, oh, no, you can't come. That's right. I said, what do you mean I can't come in? Well, your child have to say it's okay for you to come in. I said, my child is underage. I brought him here. Right. And so I looked at my, my son and my son said, oh, no, no, I want my mom in, you know. But I'm just thinking, what if my son, I just, I don't, I don't. But this has been going on for years. And as I read through the Bible, I realize that they've been sacrificing the children for years. Yep. And what that was on, on the screen was, was just another sacrifice sacri- you saw Sacrifice it. of children. You. And one of the problems I'm having, and thank you for the videos. I was sharing one, of, I was trying to share one of the videos that you had sent to some of the females that have children, young children in school. And I wasn't able, when I sent it over, they wasn't able to open it up. But I got in a conversation with some of my coworkers, and they were talking about an incident that they had had at their school. And as soon as I mentioned a spiritual warfare or I brought Christ in it, I could just literally see them like roaches just go mm-hmm. another way. Yeah. And I said, and I'm praying, like, Lord, how do I get to them? Because we can have these conversations, we can have these debates, but how do I bring it back to Christ? Because this is the problem that we have it now. Um, Nobody want to have nothing to do with Christ, but they see the problem. Everybody's experiencing the problem now. So, that's my dilemma. How do I get past all the conversations
0: and take it back to Christ? No, you're doing that. The question you're really asking is, how do I do it in a way in which they receive it? And we can't answer that. Right. Because... You're doing a very good job when we can have a lengthy conversation with people we care about and address these subject matters broadly. And then say, you know, ultimately the resolution to this, we got to get back to God. We need Jesus. Right. That is the testimony that has to be dropped into the conscious, collective conscious of those people in that environment. And God does the work with that. He does the work with that. When you can actually navigate that conversation to God and Jesus, then you've done your job. This is what I warn us about, thinking that our job is to save them. You can't do that. And nine times out of 10 in these presentation forums, if we can share the gospel, you need to be like any good salesman, ready for them to say no nine times before they say yes one time. And that's because it's not about you again. See there, there's so much about us that impedes the process of doing God's will. Like we want to be, see people converted just because we open our mouth. No, but we don't want them to cuss us out or spit on us. See what I'm getting at? So then we're going to keep our mouth shut because we don't want them mad at us. We don't want them censoring us. We don't want them thinking bad about us. That's completely too much self in that. That's why Jesus said, if you don't take up your cross, you actually can't be my disciple. So this is why people are not hoopadiming Jesus. Does He talked about all that stuff? He He exposed it all. And so, um, who has the mic? You're doing all right, though, my sister. Go ahead on, Gigi.
8: Um, so this topic was a little overwhelming for me, I think, only because I resonated with what Lisa said earlier, um, like years back ago when I wasn't going to Grace Bible Church. I was going to a Catholic church, and um, you mentioned something about unconditional love, and I think that's something that I've learned is not true because back then I used to think that, like, pride and all of that was okay and, like, a lot of other stuff. So, like, like now that I'm here, I'm so thankful that I know, like, right from wrong but I'm still I'm having trouble with, like, the guilt factor, especially still being young. Like, yep. it's, it's like, weighing really hard on me. Yeah. And I think it's also because everything is just kind of hard because I just got back from the Philippines a couple of days ago. And it, it happens out there, too. Yep. And, like, yesterday, like, my dad was just so angry.
0: We we have one, terrorist. And it's just so scary how, like, evil
8: can be. And I guess, like, my question is, like, how how do I, like, be okay? Because sometimes, like, it's just scary. Like, it's all around me. And, like, even in the nursing school, like, I have classmates that are, like, gay as well. And like in the, sc- in the school setting that I was working at and, um, even in books as well. And, you know, when I become a nurse as well, like, I want to be careful with that too. And like, I don't know how to like, cause you were saying like, I feel like I'm still baby in the faith to where I don't know how to talk to certain people that are doing wrong and I feel like it's my fault for not getting it yet or not having the tools to do that. Like, I want to be, like a, like, a real soldier of Christ, and I want to fight for what's right. And every time, like, I try to speak my mind or even to my parents, like, they just shut me down. So, like, it teaches me to stay quiet. Yep. And, like, I have, like, gay family members on my Filipino side all around me, and I don't say anything. Right. Because I I feel like I don't know, like I'm scared to speak up and like I have guilt towards that and I feel bad and I feel like I like have to do something or or like God will be mad at me. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. No, that part is not true where you are with that. Um, There are multiple things to be done as a Christian. The first and foremost is to remain Christian in your thought processes and perspective, particularly when you're in the community of, of homosexuals uh, or, or, or gay, uh, the gay community, meaning you don't have to be any different in who you are than as they are who they are. And when the conversation steered towards something that would demand that you be more Open and more intimate about who you are, you let them know you're a believer. You let them know you're a Christian. So I want you to follow this. This is not hard. Because the world has already been leavened with the gospel, it has. We're in a Western culture. The Philippines is part of a Western colonial cultural history. They've heard so much about the gospel. So it's not like it would be a brand new thing to them. So if they hear that Gigi is a Christian, Now they got to reckon with what that constitutes in their own mind and in their own conscience about who you are in your allegiance to God. Right. At the first level. And and what I mean by that is to be able to openly say, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian. That is a stance in itself. And it's going to come with its own heat and controversy. Every Christian is not at every level to be ready to open their mouth and engage in some battle around spiritual things. So baby girl does not need to be obligated to be ready to say something that she does not know, particularly if she does not know how to engage them at that particular nuance level, because there's just many things you want to be able to think through. Remember, he that is wise when it souls. So it is not just a matter of just running off at the mouth. It is a matter of relationship. It is a matter of timing. It is a matter of framing. It is a matter of preparation. So like with Gigi and a lot of Christians, you have to be ready to allow a boot camp process to occur in your life where you are practicing in real life strategies on how to prepare to engage, which means you're not gonna engage every time a situation comes up. You're gonna do more thinking, more learning, more analyzing, more setting up a kind of scenario of, okay, this one person seemed like they were much more reasonable. Maybe in the future, I'll get a chance to talk with that person. Some of them are projecting all kinds of arrogance and pride. That's a cover up for insecurity, but you may not be strategically ready to deal with that. So what you don't want to do is beat yourself up for what you cannot do because of what you do not know. That's wrong. So kind of just stop there, realize I'm in boot camp, you know, in boot camp, they got all kind of apparatus for you to try to work on. And you look silly because, you know, you grab the rope, you go up to two, two, two tugs and then you fall on your butt. Right. Because you're not strong enough to actually scale that wall yet. But you will be able to scale that wall. You will be able to na- navigate your way under the ropes. You will. All believers do. You will. It's a matter of time. And you're going to have to be patient with yourself because right now your project is around getting your nursing degree. So your job is to be able to navigate those murky waters more or less depending upon God to keep you centered in him so you can focus on academics. The relational aspect. That's going to have to be done very conservatively. Do you understand that? You just have to be conservative about that. So there's going to be a kind of loneliness in that element because it is with all believers. Ask any of the sisters who've been through college. It's a lonely thing because, you know, you're dealing with a lot of people who have a total different worldview than you. But you're not alone. So like we're not going to have the kind of equanimity of spiritual fullness and confidence and joy. And the witness of the church when we're when we're in these areas where it's just me. Believe it or not, I've told you guys many times I'm an introvert naturally, so I'm very comfortable being by myself. I'm also very comfortable being in a crowd of people and be anonymous. I do not have to be the point of conversation. And a lot of times I'm very thankful that I'm that way because a scenario will occur where I don't see an opening. I don't see an opening and I don't have to feel any way that there's no opening to talk. Does that make some sense? Right. So you'll be okay.
8: And when I was in the Philippines, some of my family did ask about my faith with God, and I told them that I wasn't a Catholic anymore and I was a Christian, that I read my Bible. And it was weird to see, like, how it is there because I kind of told them my reasoning for why I'm Christian, and I felt like being a Catholic as well, like we were taught to be perfect. But it was the complete opposite is what I heard. I heard that... Most people in the Philippines are Catholic because the few Christians there are in the Philippines are the ones that think they're all that. Mm -hmm. So it was like kind of like, you know, to hear to hear their perspective. It was kind of like new for me.
0: Right. Now, that's the contextualizing of it. That's not that's not generalized across the whole world. Mm -hmm. So I will tell you a little bit about what's going on with our Filipino uh, brothers and sisters in the Philippines around that. Um, There has been uh, a level of arrogance on the part of Protestants for a long time, particularly in the Philippines. A a legalism, a self-righteous representation of the gospel that is more noxious than even Catholic asceticism, okay? Because most of Catholicism in the uh, Philippines is nominal it's not even deep and solid I can tell you that okay because I know a lot of my Filipino brothers they know this but there is an arrogance on the part of Christians with a form of self-righteousness because they are Baptist or they are reformed or they are Wesleyan or some other denomination. That's what I meant by the party spirit that's what I meant that is not the gospel it's just another opportunity to differ and other from people Okay, so they pick up on that because there's been a long history of a battle of Protestantism and Catholicism in those areas. So that that's true in many different sectors of the world, certainly true in the Virgin Isles and things like that. I can tell you that's really the case. So that's a sad reality, because, again, who makes you to differ? Right. So Protestant is getting all arrogant about them knowing the doctrines of grace and them knowing soteriology and them knowing the bible and that stuff creates a party spirit within that context and they never get a chance to sit down and talk about doctrine at the level of a conciliatory kind of attitude and character which is what we should be looking for it doesn't matter who is what we should be looking for an opportunity to speak very uh, casually, calmly and respectfully to people about what we believe. That denominational I shouldn't mean a thing to you, which would pump you up and make you think you're better than somebody else. But Protestantism is owning that blot today. Does that make some sense? Now, Catholics had it at one point and you'll still find stupid Catholics that, you know, that, you know, boast in praying to, to saints. But that's OK that's humanity. Okay, so don't don't let that jade you. Let's keep moving, so I can. show oh, I'm sorry. Out. I
8: had like one more quick, quick question. Sure. It doesn't have to do with pride, but it has to do with something you said earlier. So when you said we're more biased to ourselves, like um, meaning, like are we still allowed to like? How do you not be like overly confident? Like, are saying positive affirmations to oneself still okay with um, young teens and? I like myself that struggle with self-esteem issues. No,
0: no, definitely. When I when I talked about bias, I was simply saying that we, if we exceed the proper biblical parameters of what constitutes who we are as human beings, then we're going to set ourselves up for a delusion. Okay, and that that can easily happen, and that delusion is going to be harmful to us because, like. Uh, um, affirming who I am to myself and thanking God for the gifts that he's given me and the uniqueness of who I am is fine for me to do as long as that it as it doesn't create an opportunity for me to other people make me different than other people make me better than other people does that make some sense yeah right that's and and, and we know you are trying to you know recover character because you've been traumatized and, and, and hurt like many of us have. I have too. So I know what we're doing when we're trying to recover that, that foundation of who we are in Christ. That's not easy to do. So you're working to do that and then you're getting hit and, and you still got to try to recover and not turn into the negative sequencing, you know, devolving down into, you know, not loving yourself. Uh, all that you got to keep working through. You're still in healing. Okay. Who has the mic? Uh, we're going to start with uh, Wayne. Go on
5: Wayne. I want to thank you, first of all, Pastor, for tackling a, a, a subject that many people are avoiding. So sure. thank you for that. Yes. Uh, when, I was, when I saw this, and I've seen things like this before, it is clearly a spiritual problem. Sure. It is absolutely a spiritual problem where love can be redefined to whatever I want to make it. Yep. It is so far away from what God's ideal of love is and how he created us to be. Yep. And this distortion of love, we must know what the cause of it is because it has led up to this very moment. It's sure. not something that just suddenly came not about. At all. It's not new. It's been in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in works for many, many years. We have to know that truth is my sword. And that truth is to know, really, the origin of, of the fall of man, the origin of evil, the origin that has perverted everything that God wanted from the very beginning, and that is contained in the story in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden. That is the origin of everything that has gone wrong, everything. You're very right about
0: that, and we teach that all the time here. And I'd like to add to it. And, and, and when you talk about origin, you have to actually talk about the developmental um, uh, differentiation and morphing of that evil to where we are now. Because here's the thing. People have a hard time weighing uh, understanding a serpent in a garden from the complexity of a new world order that is operating at the kind of multi-front attacks that are as sophisticated as they are today and so there has been in the same way the gospel has progressed through the scriptures an incremental development of these kind of uh, macro themes of evil up to our present hour and people need to be able to understand that to see what's going on the
5: the story in the in the garden it is is it is about the misuse of god's love and from the misuse came the perversion that we see grown to to the very day to to, to today right the the apple
0: Okay, so story. I need you to stop for a second. Oh, please, let
5: me just... Well, let me well just go back and correct
0: the apple, because it's not even about the apple. See, so when you go into narrative, you're going to put my people to sleep, and I'm not going to let you do that. Well,
5: I'm not going to do that very long, okay, but Okay, well, then go
0: back plan. and correct the apple, because it's not an apple.
5: The apple is a metaphor. It's
0: not an apple. It's a, a apple. story.
5: It's not a literal fruit. It's not even to
0: be understood biblically that way, and I'm going to argue with you on that, so I'm not going to even let you build that narrative, because you have no biblical basis. So you know what, it's, what you know what you're doing? You can talk about the apple from an extra biblical standpoint, but then I'm conceding with you. But I'm not going to concede with you because you're arguing that the origin of the evil came from the garden, did he not? Right, because I've dealt with this for many years. And why men want to employ an apple instead of what that tree is actually most closely identifying with becomes a real problem of shifting and moving into a pathway that will get away from identifying the enemy for what he really is. So can you talk about this if you want to take up these people's time without using the metaphor of the apple? Because what I'm going to challenge you to do is go back and do the work and justify an exegetical extraction of an apple metaphor, okay?
5: The story in the, in the garden is the most beautiful metaphor. There is, there's serpents don't talk. They don't talk. But this serpent knew, knew God's will. It knew what God commanded Adam and Eve to do. Uh, I can go on further, but I'm not going to make any headway here. It's a metaphor. The apple is symbolic of something much greater and it is the key to understanding
0: not the where apple. the fall went. Not the apple. Thank you. And, and you, if, you were, if you were at grace for a long time, you would know that we, un- we understand that there is a transcendent understanding to that narrative. We, you, we would all know that we're not dealing with a, a literal tree of knowledge of good and evil and that the serpent is symbolic of something more transcendent you guys do know that right um but i would love to hear you develop uh an apple paradigm and and you can bring it to me in written form and and i'd love to have a conversation because these people won't listen to you if you come in with a myth that's not able to be anchored into scripture and we would love see we're serious about the bible so i'm just letting you know They're going to say, and all these brothers, you got a bunch of brothers here. They won't even let you out the door when the class is over without challenging you. Okay, Wayne, where's this Apple bit? Because we see apples everywhere. We got a major computer system, major technological company with the Apple and a bite out of it. This is what I was telling you guys about the evil symbols. They can be distractions. Why an apple and not what that tree has indicated to us of it really being. So we'll leave that there. Thank you, Wayne. And you're right, though. It's a total abuse of the love of God. Any other ladies? All right. All right. Go, go down, Lamont, because I'm going to shut it down
9: after this. It, yeah, uh, I just want to bear record to, you know, I mean, we've been sojourning since 1982. And since at least the late 80s, you had brought up these things in subject. And, you know, I had no clue. It was like very surprising to me. So I want to bear record before these people um, that. You know, you were talking about these things to me and and others and, you know, in your diligence, you spread out and your voice was broadened. Um, So I I personally thank you for that. And I thank God to be in you for that. Um, You know, I mean, I can go into what we were just talking about, you know, and open that up. I I don't want to open that up with him. Yeah, yeah. No, you know, uh, no, no. Listen, organically.
0: No, no. But listen to me. I, I want to just I want to encourage you, because I'd love to hear that conversation fleshed out. But, you know, time and season is everything. These people are right. not interested in an opening up of that because that's a long narrative. Right. We're, we're just talking about sharing snippets and maybe even asking questions. We're only going to take one or two more. But because, you know, this is the beginning of a lengthy conversation on this is not going anywhere. This is going to get bad.
9: Right. But but hear me. Mm-hmm. What what the reason why I call for this mic mm-hmm. is because, you know, doctrinally I, God has helped me. Um, but and and I understand what you're saying, you know, like Philippians, you know, uh, five and you know uh, you know, be interested in others, you know, let this mind be in you which is also in Christ Jesus. In in something like that subject. For me, it would be very, very challenging to address in love, which is edifying, which is, as it were, beseeching one to come out of that and into a washing and into a baptism of salvation. Um, I mean, I would want that for them. And yet at the same time, um, you know, how to address it correctly, how to address it with a soft tongue, an afflicted tongue. You know, um, whereby I could, you know, as it were, uh, ruin myself to make friends. Yeah. According to Proverbs eighteen. Sure. Um, sure. I would ask you, you know, just give a clue. Give a maybe you already have, but um, how you know me? How would I address that in love? Just as a quick sample yeah I want something to study to answer yeah I'm, I'm listening to you.
0: yeah, no, that's great i I think that what you would do is be able to you would have to be able to at length hear them out so that you can know where they are, where they are personally, over against where it is the subject matter, and know the subject matter well enough that when you deconstruct that subject matter from a scriptural standpoint, which you would have the capacity to do, you deconstruct it in a way that makes sense to them. And that's a a patient hearing out of where they're coming from, which is a counterintuitive call for us. Because either we're trying to help them or we're trying to demolish that idea. Does that make some sense? Right. So we would like to be able to do both. Demolish the idea and help them at the same time, because you can demolish the idea and it'd be completely irrelevant to them. So the goal would be that the idea would be demolished in them because of your ability to hear that subject matter out so fully that you kind of find where their weakness is, where their vulnerability is, where their want is, where their want. If a person talks long enough, you know, this we'll see where their desire is. And then we go, "Uh aha, I I see a point of entry and I'm going to start there to bring them into a deeper query as to why I don't take their position. Right. That's that's why. So he that is wise winning souls. And and you know how to do that. And we all do. And in this subject matter, we're going to have to learn how to do that. Because what's going on in the Marxist training camp today is they're looking for an opportunity for one of them to be a martyr. I've already sent you this stuff, so it's really true. I'll be sending you more. But if you look at the uh, strategy, it's the same thing with the BLM, Black Lives Matter, when they would go out and they would protest uh, an atrocity and they would keep inflaming it. We call it problematizing. This is a Marxist strategy. You problematize and no one can de-escalate it. Like de-escalating techniques for them is offensive because they have a mentality of saying, if you de-escalate, if you de-escalate, you are marginalizing me. If you marginalize me, you are killing me because for them, everything is a social construct. Everything is a word game. Are you guys hearing me? which means if we say that you are not a real man, for them, they get to own the notion that we just violated them. This is called violence to them. There's a real gymnastics of rhetoric and propaganda going on at the psychological level with them, for which if you and I don't understand this instability of thinking, feeling, thinking, feeling, when you go to just say something that makes logical sense, and they blow up, you go, why did they just go off? Because for them, it was an actual attack on their essence, because their essence is wrapped up in their label. It's in what they say they are. So if you demolish their label, you demolish them, and their reaction is going to be one of justification to harm you in return. It's going to be called justice. I'm going to stop right here. And I'm going to tell you something else that's going on that you need to know about it. Um, So we're in, in the stages of deconstruction in terms of Marxism. And that means they are practicing tearing things down. Tearing down for them is equity. Equity means they're getting paid the reciprocity of alleged past hurts and harms every time they tear something down every time they burn up a car every time they get into an argument every time they break into a store every time they take something because what that is is an active sort of militant plundering of the spoil of the system that they have been oppressed by are you listening to me this is the reason why the government is not doing anything So like, and the plunder is a system. So what that means, ladies and gentlemen, and I, you know, I really just, my heart hurts how ignorant my black people are to this. It really hurts because when I try to tell my black people they need to wake up, that they are also targets of the destruction of this system. They're acting like, you know, I'm anti-black. But I told them Obama wasn't black back, back, you know, 20 years ago. They still haven't figured it out. He's the one that initiated this and nobody knows it. He initiated this move. He opened that door. And and if you go look at his presentation to the gay community and then look at uh, Biden's, you see a correlation between the two. Okay, and that's what you're seeing going on. So what you have to know is, if you're thinking that they think like you, you're gonna be at a disadvantage, particularly if they're operating out of a woke position. They're 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 looking for people to become so frustrated and upset that somebody in like and particularly they want a Christian to do it. This is why I don't go for the political party thing in our church. So you guys hear me tackling that because we've had folks in our church that are on the left and on the right. So extreme in their positions. All that's a trap. The enemy loves that. That's nothing but the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That's not Christ. It's not his apostles. They love that. And, and then it becomes a carnal warfare and not a spiritual one. And what they're looking for so they can have a martyr among the trans community. So this thing can go up in flames. I'm telling you, that's the next, that's the next level. Understand whenever they act out, they are seeking equity and they are given permission to do this by our president and this whole administration. The way you need to understand this then is don't be trapped by the systemic manifestation because that's the falsity of systemic racism, that propaganda, systemic racism, systemic racism. That gives them justification to ignore you as a person. Did that make some sense? And if you are simply in the domain of the system, do you know what they get to do? They get to break in your car. They get to steal your stuff out of your car. They get to plunder your goods. They don't care if you're black or white because the car is part of the system. Do you see how broadly deranged this is? And so it's important for you and I to know how to engage them from the standpoint of their being naively excited at a militant level to want to get some kind of reparation. So if you're, if you're talking to them, you want, you want to make sure that you're not pejorative like not, not cocky and unnecessarily uh, offensive, right? But winsome and confident and, uh, and, and informed. Winsome, confident, and informed. That's the way you have to be. Um, and it's all right not to, it's all right to think that I don't have to win a battle today. You don't have to win a battle today. Uh, Cause this is gonna be a long battle This is this is a long march to a utopian scenario of a complete breakdown of Western culture. And it's a direct attack on Christianity. And that's because Christianity has been weak, logically, weak, uh, evangelically, weak in terms of good works for many, 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 many decades. Many, many, many. You you won't you're not going to even hear a word out of them going after Muslims. Do you hear me? Because they know you say something crazy about Allah, you're going to get your tail toe up. Did you hear me? And they already know Muslims know how to actually actuate as a group when somebody wants to meet them by force. So the Christian church has lost men. We've lost men. We've lost men. And because we've lost men, we don't know how to stand in righteousness on grounds that allow us to maintain our constitutional rights, even if it means suffer. Where our churches are weak. That's why you don't hear, hear them preaching this stuff. They're weak. They're bound by their, their tax status, and they don't, they don't want to suffer. And it's a sad reality. And, and all you can do is pray for them, you know, and be prudent. I'm listening. I'm listening.
9: Um, that is a scripture and a thought. Now, I, know I don't have church history, but I have this. Jeremiah um, 51, 7, 17, you
0: know this. I do. Uh,
9: 10, 14, Which you were right 15. near, right next to it with Isaiah 29. Sure. You know that. Sure. All right, um, And it says, every man is brutish by his knowledge. And that's the knowledge that puppeth up, right? And, and that word brutish is the same word as in the Old Testament, I I don't have the addresses that you are to put away evil it is to be consumed uh, by fire or swallowed up can I come from that vantage point and show that the serpent meant to bring you to that point of being swallowed up and being set on fire and being under the wrath of God as he already was. So that's a Bible
0: study that y'all just got a little snippet of a Bible study right here Um, uh, so, of course, Lamont, you could do that, but that's why I cut Wayne off from from expanding because it has to be more fully developed. You know that. Yeah. All right. So you know it's it nine forty-five.
9: What's that? What? Nine forty-five. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, I thought it was the first. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Both ready for a study right Jesus. <laughs> So, hometown, and court.
0: What's that? 20? Oh, yeah. Okay. Let me stop. Now, you you are Lamont. We love you. And we definitely want you on our team when we go to battle. Uh, But you know what I'm doing. I'm I'm making sure the saints are not overweary because there's a point at which it has to break down and be simple because we're tired. All right. All right. Let's close in prayer and. uh, love our God and love his word and ask him to build us up. And uh, yeah, thank you, Father. Thank you for our class that is willing to study these things. Thank you for those online who may have learned something as well. We, we know what's in front of us. Uh, we want to face it because we care about our children. We have discovered that we were quiet for way too long, about 60 to 70 million babies slaughtered in the womb we've been quiet on that so we're reaping the consequences there's no doubt about it um we will we will wake up to the atrocity of negligence to be prophetic and priestly uh in our world help us to be ready for the battle to come as we go our way give us traveling mercies Strengthen us between now and Sunday and then bring us out eagerly to worship you again. This we're praying for the whole body of Christ everywhere in the world. In Jesus name. Amen. Amen. All right, God bless you